Yo, can you hear me? Yeah, you sound good. How are you? Are you biohacking right now? I am. That's why I keep muting my mic quickly every time I speak so you don't complain about the background noise. Are you freezing yourself right now or doing extremes? No, I'm, 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 a, I'm heating myself right now. Gaurav's next to me meditating. Wow. He can meditate while biohacking? That guy is multi-talented. No, man. He, he can meditate while I'm doing a show right next to him. That makes sense. I mean, I, I meditated with him every day. I don't know how we didn't end up connecting, but every morning in Dubai, and pretty impressive. I could, you could look. Hold on, you, hold on, no, no, no. You me, you meditate my ass, man. There's no way you meditate. Okay, well, by meditate, I mean attempt to sit still without. Yeah, I, I'm the I'm the worst meditator in the world, but I'm <laughs> good for like three minutes. I do try, and Gorov actually was this one of the people who convinced me it was important. Uh, let me get Danish up. Just give us a quick macro overview where we, as we get the panel organized. I think we should do that more often. It's uh, yeah, I did it this just morning. a good uh, recap. Morning, we discussed. It was it was it was good. Oh, it's good, man. It's good. Did you get a lot of hate from the macro guys about why we're talking about crypto? No, I generally uh, my approach to the finance spaces is like in the movies where you pull the pin out of a grenade, you throw it into the room, and then you walk away. So I, I don't know what they said after I left. So you walked away right afterwards, did you? So, uh, they, they they were not hating at all. Actually, I think uh, we'll have a more. I've sent. I've I've I told you, man. You're 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 a very intimidating man. I've said this multiple times. No one believes me. But quick question. Um, I've sent out all the invites. There's no question. There's a statement. I've sent out all the invites, and Danish is up, so you can give him the mic, and uh, whenever he's ready. Yeah, I think we should let him go. Yeah, sorry about the background noise. How you guys doing? Um, just wanted to give a quick macro update. Uh, again, our shows are at eight a.m. Eastern. So just a couple of hours before you all, uh, you know, for everybody that's listening, uh, we usually cover like more gener general finance and then Scott comes in, drops bombs and then leaves. And then it's like, OK, I guess we're not talking crypto. But as soon as he leaves, like everybody's talking crypto. Uh, but really quickly on the finance side, biggest news of the week, all of the deals that are happening between India and the U.S. If I could tell you, this is probably one of the most consequential changes in posture by India and the U.S. GE is now making engines, uh, is, is selling engines to India. Uh, you know, Micron is making chips in India. India is now supporting uh, AI efforts uh, in, uh, in the U.S. and in India. This alliance is building. And, uh, you know, I know everybody thinks that China is the rising power. Uh, I'm not convinced. I think from an economic perspective, India is showing its merits right now. I had, funny enough, just about half an hour ago, I was talking about Gaurav. He goes to me and I'm, I'm like organizing for the panel. He goes, Mario, how is India meeting everybody? Is Modi, who's the prime minister, is Modi in the US? Are they coming to the US? He's meeting Ray Dalio. He's meeting Elon Musk. He's me meeting Sam Altman. And then he's like, Mario, we got to start doing your show in India. We got to get you to India. Um, so that was literally about half an hour ago, Danish. Yeah, it's quite impressive what's happening in India right now. By the way, we're building a consulate in Bangalore, which is India's AI hub and tech hub, uh, that isn't just, it's not by coincidence. I think we're, we're, we're this, there's this confluence that's going to happen in India. It's quite exciting. The only thing, the other, the other big, big news, I think this week was around, uh, Fed, uh, Chair Powell's, um, uh, commentary around rate hikes, but you know, that might be too detailed. He essentially pointed to the fact that there's going to be likely two more rate hikes this year. Uh, and nobody, nobody believes in. That's pretty much the other big news. 
I saw the markets didn't really care about his comments. Yeah, the market does not care at all. I mean, there was a little bit of this week might be the first you know losing week in in uh, in ten weeks or twelve weeks, but uh, nothing to worry about. And it's not like a giant crash because of rate hikes. It seems like nobody's worried about it. Um, uh, and in fact, people on our panel today feel like uh, there will be no more rate hikes. And I mean, this is a crazy prediction, but someone on our panel uh, and people seem to agree believes that we might even hit 2% this year. I don't believe that at all in terms of inflation. There's no way, but uh, but at least the market is starting to think that, you know, things are going to start slowing down uh, before they speed back up. Yeah, I literally asked them what they were smoking when they brought that up this morning, I think. But uh, <laughs> it is what it is. Mario, we actually have some breaking news. I know it's really early in the space, but I do want to go ahead and mention this, especially because we have one, two, three, four, at least five lawyers on stage. If you're in a room with five lawyers, it's generally not a good We have thing. more lawyers than, than called itself. Uh, it's on, on too many lawyers, but I love you guys. Uh, oh, you this, the news that, this is the news that just broke. Can uh, anyone hear me? Uh, yeah, we Someone speaks to another space not crashing. Hello? I hear you. Do you hear me? Yeah, we got you. Oh, okay. You got me. So so hold on. Yeah. Uh, John, you can hear me. Yes, so Scott just dropped out, did he? Do you, do you hear me? Oh, I can't hear Scott. Yeah. Is Scott speaking? Oh, I can ask. We can hear Scott. Oh, okay, okay. So Scott. Yeah, Scott, I can't hear you at all. So after you're done with the breaking news, I'm going to remove you and put you back up in a few minutes. So I'm going to be Fair. quiet till you give me a heads up, Scott, that you've, you take over the rib, but I can't hear shit you're saying. Just a heads up. Go ahead. Sure. I just want to quickly, there's breaking news. The United States Supreme Court sided with a Coinbase Global Inc. unit in a ruling that reinforces the ability of companies to channel customer and employee disputes into arbitration. The justices voted five voting 5-4 ruled that lawsuits filed in federal court must be put on hold while a defendant presses an appeal that would send the case to arbitration. Business groups rallied behind Coinbase in the case, saying that letting litigation go forward would impose unnecessary costs. Consumer advocates said judges should have the discretion to decide which claims should proceed during appeal, as courts do with other areas of the law. Obviously, we see this uh, We see this headline, you know, U.S. Supreme Court rules for Coinbase in its bid to halt court proceedings as company seeks to move customer litigation into arbitration. And this is the United States Supreme Court. We have five lawyers to tell us what this means. And uh, I'll, I'll be quiet now, Mario. I'll come back. But uh, I'll tell you in the chat. Any lawyer want to jump in and tell us uh, why this is important? I'm happy to jump in as the only lawyer who is taking Coinbase to task for this and survive their motion to compel arbitration. Um, ultimately, this is a ruling that's probably right on the law but it's terrible for Coinbase customers because you want your cases to be heard in the public. I have over 150 current arbitrations against Coinbase. It's terrible that everything I do is behind closed doors. The world should know the issues Coinbase has protecting their customer assets. Instead, we get to see Coinbase go around the world and say they have no issues because these aren't publicly disclosed. Unfortunately, the the way the law is written, the Supreme Court probably got it right. Coinbase was probably right. Um, the only way you can get around the arbitration provision is to not actually be a customer of Coinbase. James, I believe you have your mic up. And J W. Oh, good, good. No, I, 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 I didn't want to jump because I didn't know if I could hear you. Sure you just... We're good. Yeah, yeah, I can hear. I, I, it was funny now as I'm going to hear everyone commenting, but I have no idea what the breaking news is because I couldn't hear you. But sorry, go ahead, James. Yeah. Um, so this issue of forcing customers to go to arbitration goes back uh, to Wall Street doing this after 
the crash of 1987. And so um, they, uh, everybody on Wall Street put arbitration provisions into their customer agreements that you sign at the inception of the agreement. And the Supreme Court uh, back then said that there is, under the Federal Arbitration Act, a federal public policy in favor of enforceability of uh, arbitration agreements. So there, there's a long, long line of cases saying that these agreements are enforceable in, in uh, arrangements like this. And so Coinbase is not an outlier. It's sort of following the lead, uh, a well-tread uh, path of uh, broker-dealers across the country. And if any of you have an account with anybody, Charles Schwab, Fidelity, J.P. Morgan, you have agreed probably uh, to arbitration. So uh, Coinbase is, is, has a lot of company in in having this requirement. JW, then John, please. Yeah, this is not unusual. Um, I, you know, Coinbase is in the news because of the SEC's enforcement action. This case was pretty straightforward. Uh, straightforward application of the American Arbitration Act that favors arbitration. The empirical studies of the effect of arbitration have shown that customers tend to get more money faster when they go through arbitration than when they go through regular court. The reason why lawyers often hate arbitration is the fees are lower. And that's part of the reason why the customers get more money at the end of the day. It's harder to charge 40% on a customer when you're going to arbitration than when you're going to a long court battle. Uh, and arbitration is much easier for customers to do on their own rather than needing to hire a lawyer. So it has its benefits. I don't doubt Coinbase has its problems. I have, I've had issues as a customer in the past. Every uh, you know major financial institution has has customer service issues, but um, I wouldn't say arbitration is necessarily uh, worse than than what happens in court. At the end of the day, go ahead, John Dean, John Dean, and then John Reed Stark, please. Uh, listen, this is fantastic news for Coinbase. It's bad news for the securities plaintiffs attorneys. I'm a plaintiffs attorney. I've filed class actions before. So this is great news for Coinbase because they basically had what was considered the gold standard arbitration clause waiver of uh, participating in class actions. Imagine a ripple loss or a judge saying, okay, you know, XRP is a security or this one's a security. Then Coinbase, if they'd have lost this case, would have been facing a slew of class actions of all the different token holders for listing, you know, tokens, even if that token wasn't classified because they'd be using the XRP case or any other case to say, look, it's substantially the same thing. So uh, bad news for securities, plaintiff's attorneys, great news for Coinbase. And I agree, you know, uh, for Coinbase, it gets to keep everything private because arbitration, private hearings, uh, they're going to mark everything confidential and uh, you, you, you can't release that information. So if there is uh, news that the public should know that is a, a uh, downside. So other than that, that's all I got to say. Go ahead, John. Reedstark. Yeah, I, I agree with John. I agree with everyone. <clears throat> I think this, this issue though has been around probably, you know, the 35 years that I've been doing this, it's a consumer issue, you know, um, and it was often way long before crypto, there's been all sorts of movements to stop mandatory arbitration because uh, consumer advocates don't like the fact that it's secret. They don't think people get a fair shake. They think they'd have a, they think it's, uh, 
balanced more toward the industry. JW might be right that, you know, studies have shown that it's not, but who knows? So I think it's uh, one of those issues that's been coming up for a while. Congress always talks about getting rid of these provisions. And um, you see it in cyber sometimes because you'll have, like I remember with the Equifax data breach, they put together all kinds of remedies for the people who had experienced any sort of, who were impacted at all by the, the, and any potential exfiltration of data from Equifax. And they put in an arbitration clause and they got all kinds of hell for it because people just signed away the, the victims of the, the data breach just signed and agreed to arbitration. Some of the lawyers just threw it in there in that agreement. So they eventually took that out. So it's one of those things that's at least perceived as not consumer friendly, as least perceived as something that's secret. But what's annoying to me about it is already people are tweeting, hey, I treat John Reed Stark, you're, you're an idiot. See, you're a moron. Look, Coinbase just won in the Supreme Court. You know, this this is an issue I, I'm with the, the rest of the crew on. I, I think it was correctly decided and it's a matter of Congress to act to change it. And it's not good news for people with disputes. I think the arbitration, you know, generally I'd be happier in federal court. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this, maybe I'd be better off in arbitration, but I feel like I'd be happy. I don't like doing what the industry tells me I need to do, whether it's the crypto industry or the broker dealer industry, but Congress, John, are, have, John, are, are you, John, are you daring to imply that people just read clickbait, clickbait titles and don't read the article and then attack? <laughs> exactly. That's not incomplete information. I'm shocked. Yeah, it's about like ninety nine percent of what people say when I tweet something, but whatever. So, uh, but I'm with all the guys on it. I think they're all dead, dead right on everything. Yeah, I know John and David both wanted to speak and about this topic because it seems like it's not that you know. Obviously, that like I said, the title is is huge, but I don't think it moves the needle much uh, in the bigger cases we're talking about. Go ahead, John, David. Yeah, just to wrap the bow on it, um, it's not. This wasn't a challenge to Coinbase's actual. Uh, those are the challenge to Coinbase's actual terms of service. It was just a challenge to whether or not when Coinbase filed a motion to compel arbitration, whether they can stay the case or not. It's not nearly as exciting, sexy as anything in the realm of dealing with Coinbase. Um, I do think that arbitration is obviously an abomination, but it's not a sexy issue. As the law stands, it's probably right. The only distinction I made, I forgot who said it, was... Unlike when you have a financial account where you go to a FINRA arbitration, where you have qualified arbitrators who are in the financial field, consumer arbitration versus uh, arbitration when you lose money in a security house is wildly different. It's so much better. I've done both. I continue to do both. But at the end of the day, this is a outside of clickbait. This has nothing to do with anything we're talking about. The only thing that I would add is that for people to understand why some people are going to say it's bad for customers, I don't know what the average Coinbase um, account is, but when you're talking about individual arbitrations and someone has a $2,000, $3,000 account, as you can imagine, if you can't put that case in addition to hundreds or thousands of other cases as an attorney, uh, they can't afford to pay by the hour because they're going to pay more than their account was worth in total. And you're not going to make any attorney's fees on a two or three thousand dollar account. So that's I just want people to understand why uh, there are going to be a lot of people that say this is bad for consumers. Cool. I think we've uh, litigated that one, so to speak, to death. So uh, yeah, I think 
and my conclusion is it's not that big of a deal considering everything else we're going through. It's nothing burger. Exactly, exactly. I, I know everyone wants it to be some sort of burger because it's, it looks like it's good news for Coinbase, but it's not. And before we go to the to the important stuff, Scott, I just want to do. I want to mention. We'll talk about the sponsor in a bit, but today's sponsor is one of my favorite. I think we've always talked about blockchain bringing uh, banking the unbanked. In this case, bringing internet to the people that don't have internet and and leveraging the blockchain to do so. These are the solutions we were talking about many years ago. So today's sponsor, the tweet is pinned at the top. We're going to talk about them in a while. Definitely check them out because I was pretty excited when I read that one. Uh, but go ahead, Scott. Yeah, I mean, to that end, I like I, I actually met Mickey from World Mobile at the Satoshi Roundtable in Dubai. We became friends. I've recorded a podcast with him. A- absolutely amazing. So I'm really excited to have that, that conversation later. We should probably do, I would imagine here, a very quick market update, right? Uh, although I'm looking, it seems like actually the crypto market is somewhat flat, which is a good thing when Bitcoin is sitting above $30,000, everything kind of within one to 2% of uh, price 24 hours ago. So now I talk about there. I think that the next candle is a green God candle up. And I'll tell you why I I think it's a green God candle up because everyone's expecting this to be the resistant point that Bitcoin can't break. And I don't know. I think, I think the... The point of max pain is what we expect the market to do next. Yeah, I mean, up has been max pain, in my opinion, ever since everybody uh, went into bankruptcy last year. To to be honest, as as much as I hate to say it, so many people lost all their money or tied up in Chapter 11 bankruptcies between Voyager, Celsius, BlockFi, and of course, FTX being the biggest, that the higher price goes and the less money they get, the less they're long crypto, sadly. Can I, can I ask a quick question unrelated to the market? Scott, sure. do you remember how when we talked about Binance and everyone, we had different attorneys come up on stage, said the the uh, the the order to freeze Binance US's assets, things will move fast and we'll see developments relatively quickly compared to other, compared to Coinbase or other, other you know, or FTX, for example. What movement have we seen? Is there anything worth noting at all? What were the yes, that is that's our story. I mean, that's oh, the big perfect. story today. Right. Yeah, I mean, that is the big story. And I don't know if you want to finish your point there because then I, I want to go to James Murphy, Metal Law Man, below because he's been uh, pushing on the Binance story pretty aggressively and he can give us that summary. I mean, I, I, in fact, let's just go straight into that story. I know myself, you and Mario won a call last night and we said, what do we think is a huge story? And we saw Binance actually going on the offensive against Coinbase, sending out a very clear, uh, against the SEC, sending out a very clear signal to the SEC that this time they've messed with the wrong person, wrong company. Um, uh, maybe James will take us through some of the pushback and some of the, the yeah, attacks that Binance. And James, I've pinned every, for everyone, I've pinned the tweet that he'll be likely referencing uh, above in the nest. So you guys can check that out and see his thread. Go ahead. Alrighty, so the lawyers for Binance have filed a motion asking the judge to make the SEC lawyers follow the rules. Uh, And there's a rule that says, in a case which is likely to attract media attention, counsel should not make statements that are misleading about the proceeding or likely uh, to contaminate or taint the jury pool. And, and then they also cite SEC's internal code of conduct. What this all uh, came from is everybody knows there was that hearing 
uh, on the TRO, which was not a great day for the SEC lawyers because they could not identify evidence that Binance US was currently uh, sending customer assets uh, to CZ, to his entities in the Caymans or, or wherever. Um, and it was not a good look for them. Um, and so the judge said, we need a consent order instead of a TRO. We need all the parties to get together and agree on maintaining the status quo pending uh, the rest of this litigation. That happened. They submitted an, an order that they all agreed to to the judge. And once that was entered, the SEC immediately issued a press release. And in that press release, the SEC said that they had secured emergency relief in the case and that CZ, they, they intimated and very strongly implied that they had evidence that CZ had commingled their word and diverted their word customer assets and that the order, the emergency order they obtained was, in their words, essential to protecting investor assets. So that was a press release that went out and it was tweeted out and the lawyers for Binance said, hey, that's violative of that rule that I mentioned. It's misleading and likely to taint uh, the jury pool. And so that's what they've done. And, and it's and it's unusual and it has additional um, heft to it because it is signed by Bill McLucas, who's a pretty big figure among the securities bar. Uh, in D.C., he worked at the SEC for 20 years and served as the longest-running head of the Division of Enforcement back in the 1990s, a long time ago, and then also signed by George Canellos, who was also uh, the head of the Enforcement Division at the SEC. Um, and so this this uh, turns up the heat uh, a little bit. Lawyers really don't like being accused of engaging in unethical behavior. Uh, that ratchets up um, the, you know, the volume in the case. Now, one could say that the SEC started it, but if you have any children, you know, that's not actually a defense when your child says, hey, she started or whatever. Um, but what has happened at, at the beginning of this case is unusual. I've never seen the SEC, when it files a case, send out a tweet with a picture with a bright red background where they drop the F-bomb. I have never seen the SEC do anything close to that. And what they did was they took one of the terrible, terrible emails that they've collected in the course of their investigation of Binance and quoted it. And, it, you know, it says something like, we are in, we're running an illegal exchange. We're running a fucking illegal exchange in the United States, bro, basically. Right, right. So I was going to say effing. But yes, you said that correctly. Um, and so, you know, what's going to happen now? The SEC is going to come back. They do not like this narrative to take hold. And so while they have, I think, uh, three weeks to respond, I think they're going to respond much more quickly uh, and they're going to push back hard. I would say the chances of them filing something that says, Your Honor, you're, they're right. We made a mistake with the press release. We're really sorry. Please don't enter the order. I would say that's a, there's a 1% chance of that. Instead, they're going to say, we have the right to repeat publicly what we have alleged in our uh, pleadings filed in court. And that is true. You do have that right. 
Um, and they will also likely point to a number of statements uh, by uh, tweets by CZ, Binance, the organization of Binance US, where they put their own spin on what has happened in court and in particular in that hearing. So there's going to be a fight uh, about this. But I can tell you that, you know, it has an effect for Bill McLucas and George Canellos to publicly allege that the SEC is acting in an unethical manner in probably, arguably, the largest case, the biggest case, most high profile case that any of those uh, trial attorneys at the SEC are likely to handle in their careers. So they really don't want a finding that they have in any way violated any rule or code of conduct. Why do they care, and why should they care? They're untouchable. They're effective governments. For, they're they effectively government-funded lawyers. They, I just, you know, I just think if I were them, I'd be sitting in a, in a room and I'd be shaking my head off, going, "This is actually really funny." And who gives a shit? Well, you know, there, there, the concern is for the perception and their own personal careers, uh, and so to have a court finding um, that you have violated a court rule um, and the code of conduct is significant. You don't want that on your career record that if somebody ever Googled you, because all of virtually all of the lawyers, just like John Stark and many, many others on this call, eventually want to leave the SEC and they're going to go interview. Uh, and by the way, Kind of, if you're in enforcement in particular, the first place you go to interview is Wilmer Cutler. Um, and I know because I was recruiting SEC lawyers, you know, who were uh, interviewing at uh, Wilmer Cutler back in the day when I was running my own law firm. We hired two dozen uh, SEC credentialed lawyers. And by the way, if you just indulge me, I do want to say I have tremendous respect for the institution of the SEC. I hired two dozen SEC lawyers to work with me as my partners and every single one of them was high integrity, very, very smart um, people who are great partners in the law firm. I believe what do you think I believe what do you think of the integrity? I believe the SEC what do you think I believe the SEC is right now suffering from poor leadership at the top. And that, to me, is the problem. I am critical of what the SEC is doing in some of this crypto litigation uh, and very sincerely don't think it's right. But I have tremendous respect for the institution. You know, someone once told me, and uh, I'm going to quote, and it's, someone once told me, if you take a, an ice cream, a bowl of ice cream, and you mix a teaspoon of shit into a bowl of ice cream, the whole ice cream is ruined. And I, for me, that's probably a good analogy of what's going on right now at the SEC. You, you, as, I, as I believe, you've got the majority of the people which are great, which are the ice cream. The leader seems to be poisoning the whole, the whole, the whole environment there. And I think that, you know, you talk about the integrity of the institution. I want to say that before, three years ago, I had great for the institution that was the SEC under Jay Clayton. Today, when I look at that in the SEC, uh, but to be honest, um, I think the integrity of the institution 
has taken specific my eyes a lot of damage. And look, I'm a crypto bro. I'm in crypto, so maybe you know, right now they're fighting and banning against us, and maybe I'm being a little bit emotional. But I'd love to hear from other people what you think. I want to uh, Ryan, I want to get John's thoughts to balance it out. Maybe there's a different way of looking at this. And John, uh, if you can start with that tweet that I've got open, I've pinned it above as well. Red background, and the quote is, we are operating as a fucking unlicensed security exchange in the USA, bro, by Binance Chief Compliance Officer. Yeah, you know, um, I, I do think, did you mean John Stark or John Deaton? Uh, John Reed. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm sure John uh, Deaton got a lot to say. All and then we'll go, yeah, of course, we'll go to John Deaton right afterwards. But John Reed, the only reason I went to you, John Stark, is just because I, I think you'd maybe give us a different perspective, balance it out. Of, yeah. Are we looking too too much into this? No, sure. I, I think everything that's, that's been said is definitely, um, there's a lot There's a lot of truth to everything that's been said. Here's my interpretation. First of all, you know, having worked there for almost 20 years, including 11 years as the chief of internet enforcement, you know, yeah, people filed motions all the time. I brought lots of TROs um, and lots of asset freezes and people file motions all the time and they can get very, very personal. You know, I had lots of the, the threats can range from trying to ruin my career to, you know, trying to kill my family. So all through it, you learn to let those things roll off. But I, I think that's true. I think when you call the director, I also think when you call the director of enforcement out and say he's committed an ethical violation because of what he put in a press release, um, I think the SEC will take it seriously. And I, I think you're absolutely right that the SEC will file a very uh, aggressive response. Um, and you know, when you look at that motion that, that Binance has filed, and Bill McLucas, I know him very well. I worked for him for at least seven or eight years, something like that. And um, he's larger than life, and he's probably the best SEC defense attorney on the planet, maybe that there has ever been. So I agree, his signature on that carries a large degree of gravitas, and he wouldn't sign it if he didn't believe it's true. And having worked for him, I think he does believe it's true, because one of the things that I was super, super careful about, especially when I did a TRO, was if I was making any public statements, and I used to make a lot of public statements because the press calls you a lot after you do an asset freeze in particular. And because I was cheap, I got a lot of phone calls and was handling a lot of the media. And um, Bill McLucas and his successor, Dick Walker, were both very strict about what you could say in a press release. And I wrote a lot of the press releases for the Division of Enforcement during my time at the SEC. And we're very strict that you have to pull specifically from the pleadings. You have to be really careful about mischaracterizing anything that happened in the governmental proceeding. And I think there's there's a lot of oddities to this governmental proceeding. Normally you bring a TRO, it's ex parte, the other side isn't there because the evidence is so bad. You feel like if you confronted with them with that evidence, then they would take the money and run. So usually you're you're in a judge's chambers or maybe you're in the courtroom. And I was often the main primary declarant in those circumstances of those TROs. And, you know, you testify to everything that happened and the judge would grant the TRO. Then you go back to the office and you fax all the financial institutions and freeze everyone's money who's involved in the case. And then that person goes to court and says, you got to unfreeze some of this because I have to pay the electricity. I have to pay my employees. I have to pay my lawyers. And you work out an agreement that is somewhat similar to the consent order that happened in Binance. Of course, the Binance matter to me is unprecedented because when I think back of all the TROs and asset freezes that I worked on, it was never of a multi-billion dollar financial institution. And they were never brought in open court. As I said, they were brought in secret. 
and then granted. And then there was a TRO hearing 10 days later after expedited discovery to work out the details. So we're dealing with a lot of first here. And I think that, um, but, but, but John, John Reed, yeah. one, one, John Stein, sure. one question. When you say we're dealing with a lot of, and for anyone listening, just the basics, TROs are just temporary restraining orders. So essentially the SEC is trying to freeze Binance US's assets. But right. John Stark, the, the question to you is that you, we're dealing with a lot of first. You know, we had um, uh, uh, James mentioned earlier about the tweet with the red background, and you've now talked about how this is done in an open court. Why, why is there so many firsts? Does that, does that point out to anything? Yeah, I think it just seems like social media has changed everything in terms of how you publicize cases. I think the SEC has gotten very aggressive because of the constant attacks. You know, again, during my tenure, there was a time where the SEC didn't get attacked at all. Everybody thought the SEC was doing a great job, especially after 9-11 when um, Harvey Pitt was the chair and got the, the New York Stock Exchange up and running again. But then Madoff came, the 2009 crisis came, 2008, that crisis. And a lot of people blame the SEC for a lot of things, including even going back to Enron and WorldCom and Global Crossing, all of those cases. So I think that when you're getting criticized everywhere, they've just taken a more aggressive stance. And that all comes from the top. You know, and I think Bill's old school, Bill McLucas is old school. He's about as old school as it gets. If you hang out with him, he's a man of few words. And he's just like, this is ridiculous. In my day, we never would have made any of these kinds of comments. However, but let's let's take a look at the motion and try to figure out exactly what its ramifications are. Because it certainly may prompt the SEC to become more disciplined and measured and muted, right? I think it certainly will. I think it'll achieve that goal. Uh, it may curry favor with the Binance customers, with the, the Twitter fan base, which is probably good for Binance's business. And it could even result in an admonition from the judge, you know, the, the order they've They've submitted essentially, he says, you've got to follow the D.C. professional rules of responsibility. And she might give that sort of admonition. Um, but, you know, I listened and I read the transcript. I ordered the transcript that day. I read it that day. I don't necessarily think that the statements that uh, Gerbeer Gruel, the head of enforcement, made in that press release, which says, um, further, we ensured that U.S. customers will be able to withdraw their assets from the platform while we work to resolve the alleged underlying misconduct and hold Zhao and the Binance entities accountable for their alleged securities violations. And he says, um, given that, that ZZ and Binance have control of the platform's customers and assets and have been able to commingle customer assets or divert customer assets as they please, as we have alleged, these prohibitions are essential to protecting investor assets. So I, I think, again, this is an, an incredible order in terms of the scope, it's, it's as big as, as intense, I think, as the, some of the restraining orders and asset freezes that I worked on. But the other thing is, I think strategically, I, that they might actually, this might trigger a criminal prosecution mm. or an unsealing of an indictment against Binance, because DOJ may believe that the judge needs to hear additional evidence of Binance-related fraud and that Binance deserves to understand and be given the opportunity to dispute uh, government allegations. The SEC may be withholding evidence because producing it could somehow compromise an ongoing DOJ investigation and now wants to show that evidence to the judge, which would be made easier if, for example, the DOJ accusations were unsealed. And when you accused, I, I think that it was a good point, accusing the director of enforcement of unethical behavior, that's a serious charge. And my guess is the director was very careful with his words. Uh, and their DOJ's prosecution of finance would further buttress the support of the director's allegations and deter the judge 
from tendering any sort of harsh judgment or making any preliminary determinations. I was looking over the pleadings this morning on the docket, and it's still interesting to me that the primary SEC enforcement staff declarant, that declaration has yet to be unsealed. It's not even listed on the docket, but we know it exists because it's referenced in the SEC brief supporting its motion. And if you look to the 11 times that Colby Steele, that's the name of the staff attorney, that Colby Steele's name was referenced uh, in the motion, you'll see that most of those references pertain to the wash trading and the manipulative behavior. So for whatever reason, when the SEC submitted that motion, they decided to file the declaration of Colby Steele under seal. And maybe they did that because it had customer information on it and they were concerned about it. Or maybe they did it because the DOJ asked them to. You know, um, the only thing that I know is like, let me before John, before before you continue, yeah, just brief. I, I want you to make that last point, but I, I do want to, um, because uh, we do have a, a pretty wide panel. But before that, um, yeah. before going to John Deaton as well, um, Scott, did you see the story as well that Binance is uh, is going to be testifying in the Brazilian Congress? Just came out uh, not long ago. Yeah, I was about to check it. So give me. It's not, the, it's not the two major. I, I saw on one source apparently they're saying Binance is, is um, Binance was utilized by pyramid schemes in the country to facilitate asset transfers. Then we testify in Congress. I, I don't think it's not a major story. It's nothing too concerning, but we're just seeing. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I don't know if I, you would even call that a crackdown. Uh, testifying in front of Congress. No, Mario. What, what I was talking about. Just I just wanted to make the last point. Then I want to hear sure, what the other panelists have to say because. Some of this stuff that I'm, some of these conclusions I have are purely subjective and just my guesswork. Uh, I worked a lot with FBI agents. You know, I was an instructor at the FBI Academy for in-service um, courses, and we typically had an FBI agent embedded or working with our office for multiple FBI agents. We had meetings with DOJ and the FBI almost weekly in our office to give them updates on all of our cases. Um, I was part of the the, the Commodity Fraud and Futures Task Force, which was a group of criminal prosecutors and investigative agencies and the SEC and the CFTC. And we met quarterly to talk about recent cases and what was going on. So, and, and I got very close with a lot of these agents. You know, some of them came over on the weekends with their kids to play with my kids. And, you know, so the communication lines were, were, were odd here because Oftentimes, if there's a grand jury proceeding, for example, the FBI can't tell you any of that evidence because that evidence is secret. If there is maybe some sort of undercover operation, they can't tell you about that. If they've done a search warrant, they can turn some of those dates, some of that data over to you to help them examine it. But the point is you have a very close relationship with them, but it's oftentimes a one-way street. So in this situation, my guess is that the FCC staff look at this motion and they sort of say, you know, to the DOJ, it's time for you guys to do something here because we we need some of these great facts that you've told us to hold back and it's time for you to file. Uh, just like I think after the Voyager hearing, mm. my theory anyway, when yeah. Binance was going to buy Voyager, the SEC lawyer shows up and the judge says, stop telling me not to sell this to Binance. You can't just use hearsay yeah. to convince me of this. You have to file something. So I want to hear what John yeah, it is, so John Deaton, I want to I want to go to you, and I'm I'm gonna let you respond to the conclusions that that uh, Mr. Stark came to, and also I've got a question. I'll bring it back to a question that Scott asked, uh, or Rand mentioned, is that 
Um, Gary Gary Gensler is poisoning the well. The the SEC is not operating as it usually would because of Gary, and and they kind of linked it to the tweet that was mentioned earlier and other points that uh, Mr. Stark made as well. Is that a fair conclusion? And then obviously you can comment on other things, other conclusions that um, uh, Mr. Stark came to. Sure, let me unpack it. First, yes, uh, when you look at uh, Gary Gensler, you look at the attrition, higher attrition rate of people unsatisfied with the SEC. I personally believe uh, two years from now, for sure, Gensler's not going to be there. I think he's becoming more of a political liability. And he's a transient regulator. Uh, it just because he says something doesn't make it so. Let me go to Rand's first question. Then I'll... Now first, on, that, on that comment, so John, on that comment, so Gensler won't be there. How would that work? Like, What's the process to, 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 to get rid of Gensler? The process is he becomes a political liability. At some point, the Maxine Waters and the Democrats realize that this full-fledged anti-crypto and Gary Gensler being criticized by fellow Democrats, which is starting to happen in an election year. If it wasn't an election year, maybe I don't have that opinion. But I think he becomes a political liability and they simply, he resigns or he gets a lateral move somewhere of some sort. So that's what I believe. That brings speculation on my part, but it's what I believe. And then the process will be, the process will be impeachment by the House of Representatives, correct? No, no, not, not, not at all. Yeah, no, not at all. The White House would just say, get lost, and he would then he'd give his resignation, right, John? Yeah, that, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about any kind of punitive proceeding against him at all. Not at all. It, oh, so they can, they, they can easily, so, but they can, well, what if he doesn't want to resign, though? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, what is like, no, I want to stay in a position. White House tells him to resign, he will. That, that's yeah, every kid. He told that. Biden's people tells Elizabeth Warren to call her friend and say it's time for you to go away. The election is too important. Blah blah blah, and he does. Uh, maybe they promise. I just read up. Says he's uh, facing an ethics probe. That he's uh, staying back from free. That's maybe it's not an ethics probe. No, no. So yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. Oh, Scott, do you want to clarify? Yeah, we were reading that. I just didn't want to. We were going to talk about that. It's it's at the New York Post. First of all. <laughs> it's, it's ethics scrutiny. It's a few people outside of gov- government scrutinizing his meetings with SBF, which is not really new news. Just saying that he didn't register the meetings correctly on this Zoom call. There were no emails about it. Usually you protect yourself by sharing those emails, etc. And he didn't necessarily do that. But to be clear, it was broken as if like he was being investigated. And that is not the case. Okay. So, so John, John Deaton, uh, I know I interrupted you, so I'll give you the mic. Oh, no, that's fine. So uh, let me unpack a few things. Uh, first, with uh, Rand's question of why should they care? Listen, there are some brilliant attorneys at the SEC, but there's also some that are not so brilliant and strategic. They take the SEC is great at offense. They're not so great at defense. I mean, look how they handled me. If I was in charge there, I'd said ignore the dude on Twitter. Instead, they filed motions that I should be recused. I mean, I mean kicked off the case misled the judge about my comments, all of that because they're not good at playing defense. So they do care. Second thing, as far as uh, what John Reed was saying, I think if there is a criminal indictment coming, which I believe, like others, I think we're going to see it in the next three weeks. I think that there's going to be coordination with John Reed Stark is saying, where this uh, the SEC enforcement director, Grewal, gets on the phone and says, we have to unleash it now. We have to show the judge. We have to put this in context. Don't risk uh, me getting some kind of order that says comply with the rules. And so 
because you got to understand there's a public court of opinion and then there's the court. And this falls all into the narrative. I think that they were aggressive in what they released because they're setting the groundwork. The, didn't um, uh, Binance hire uh, someone who was like chief of criminal division uh, in addition to the SEC enforcement directors uh, to come in and represent Binance or CZ? So the writing's on the wall. And so I, if there is a criminal indictment coming, I, would, I say we're going to see it in the next three weeks. And do you think the market? Do you think do you think the market would have ran? Do you think the market would have already factored that in? Do you think it will impact the market much? I think if we do get a criminal indictment, we get a little bit of a candle down. But I think a candle that kind of recovers pretty quickly because the market's pretty much priced it in. To be honest, I, I just get the feeling that everyone is on edge waiting for this criminal indictment that we have been almost programmed to believe is inevitable. Now, I, I mean. Yeah, I, I think I think it, it get a red candle down, and then we get a quick recovery. In a green yeah, I mean, listen, we yeah, I mean, to Rand's point, FTX crashed in November. Bitcoin price was back above the point from before it crashed by January last week. We saw SEC enforcement action against both Binance and Coinbase, and are now trading significantly higher than before. Both of those actions. Rand, hot mic, Rand, yeah, well, hot think, mic, Rand. Think 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 about this. The, the, basically, I think that what you're going to see is they're going to say, oh, Binance, you thought that was bad. And then they unleash even more damaging evidence, the co-mingling of funds, all of the other stuff that they, they can uh, point the finger at. And so, Yeah, I agree. I just think, John, from a market perspective, that now it's almost like every piece of news is a little less uh, dramatic than before to the market because we've seen it and expect it, right? And so, I mean... Oh, I, no, I, I, mean, I agree. And yeah, and the market's got to understand we're in. This is a lengthy fight. I mean, that's right. Uh, they, you know, Ripple. Look what Ripple did when they got sued. They hired Mary Jo White, former. Jojo, what happened, John? Question: What happened when Ripple got sued? What happened with uh, with the markets? Uh, it, it, it went it went down to seventeen cents for a while. It, it dropped fifty seven percent in the first two days, and then within a few months, uh, it had completely recovered. But nothing happened to the market. Good to hear. I think also, guys, we've got to be a little bit more cognizant of what we're dealing with here. We've been through in the last 12 months, and I'm only talking 12 months. We've been through Luna, Sierra's Capital, Voyager, Celsius, FTX, SEC Attack, Slima, Cardio, uh, uh, SEC Attack, uh, Binance. We've been through, I mean, you've got to kind of understand what you'd left with here. I call what we have left here a bunch of retop dgens that aren't selling for any reason whatsoever it's like i think if you were going to sell your crypto and now after everything that's happened you probably would have sold and i think what's left is, is the real believers how much more do you want people to go through and i think that regardless of what happens in the market now it's like i just think that you know to hit me again come on hit me again hit me again hit me again that's what it is yeah, yeah, and and as those and as those hits keep coming, you're going to see more traditional finance getting involved. I mean, Scott has okay. said this. I said this ten months ago, and Charles Payne, you know, the blueprint here is they 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 decided that they couldn't kill crypto, so we're going to crush it, and we're going to get the Black Rocks and the Fidelities and the Bank of Melons and the Nasdaq and everybody else is going to come in and 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 swoop it up at discount prices, and then and then you. You will see a softer approach. 
when those traditions. But then, players but my question, right before I, my, Scott, Scott, I know you want to jump in. I'll give you the mic right after. Promise, Rand, just briefly, when you your comments, do they? Are you talking about Bitcoin and the big guys? Are you talking about the entire the entire industry, including startups? I think that again, if you're holding altcoins, then it's the reason why you're holding altcoins is one of so either you're a complete retard, um, number one, number two, because you just don't care anymore. You've been you've been hit into a position where you kind of say, look, I've lost so much money, I don't really care anymore, whatever it is it is. Or three, you've got real conviction in the altcoin that you're holding that somehow the situation kind of resolves itself. That's what's left. But then the question would be, but but Ryan, the question would be, and Scott, I'm really sorry, last one. But Ryan, the question would be is that, okay, that's for people that are currently holding, but what about new buyers? Like, are, are they just being delayed and delayed by all this action? Or is it, are they looking at the markets now? They're like, all right, we've seen the worst. Maybe it's a good time to come in and, and buy shit up. Mario, you know what the best, uh, you know what, what uh, you know you, you know how nature works. You know, when a, when a woman gives birth, it's probably the most painful experience of her life. And she swears that moment that she will never, ever, ever uh, give birth ever again. And then she watches the kids grow. And, you know, three, uh, three months later, she's asking her husband if they can have number two and number three. Ask Scott, he'll tell you. Um, he, he's on number two. I'm on number four. Now, now, I guess it's the same psychology of the markets. When the markets are going and we get hit, we all hate this market. And we swear to God that as soon as we can get our money out of this thing, we're leaving. You know what happens when the market starts running? Like the market starts running now. Wait, if if Bitcoin runs another five thousand dollars and we get to thirty-five thousand dollars and we have that God candle that I keep talking about, everyone's going to forget about all the bad things that have happened in crypto, and all the new money is going to come in because they're going to again believe the narrative that crypto is the best and hottest place to be. Rad, Rad, it's James here. I might be able to add to this. Um, I, obviously, I write this fund flows report every week. We've had nine weeks of outflows, consecutive weeks of outflows, totaling about over 300 million US dollars. Last week, we just saw, well, this week so far, we've seen $150 million inflows. So you're absolutely right. People are just seeing uh, these corporate, large corporations come kind of to launch an ETP and suddenly they're piling back in. You know, And if I look at what they've added to, it's just purely Bitcoin, Ethereum and nothing else at well, that's not this is the largest every cycle. I watch, yeah, I watch absolutely. Things. I watch your flows. I watch your influence. I'm a, I'm an avid reader of reports, and I watch the inflows and outflows very, very, very carefully. And I realize that your market is very much a retail mentality market. Maybe it's a retail market, but it's a retail mentality market. They, I would apply. In the, there's about a, a I say, 15% institutional component to that. It's hard to calculate, yeah. but that's probably the best way of looking in, at it. Yeah. In the mindset, I, I've been watching your flows, and you're, in the mindset of your investors, I guess it's any investor, is at peak fear, they're entering, and at peak hype, they're entering. And it should be the other way around. You, if you've been here for long enough, you know that it should be the other way around. Well, it's, it's a bit more we'll back. It's a bit more complicated that because you get. So we do have some institutional clients that find big amounts at this point. When you see a bull run, this, this, the arc between the spot and the futures really widens out and they want to take advantage of that. So they immediately buy the spot and short the future. So that's why you also see shorts at this time, at this kind of time pick up too. So there is some quite big instos participating in this at the moment. Like particularly this week, some, some people have had some really chunky single line inflows, which is an institution, not an individual. 
Yeah. So, Jace, what would be what, what what would be your conclusion from this information? Where do you stand on my same question that I asked Ryan? I uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's a lot of it. A lot of the flow states, sadly, is, is coincidental. It's not leading or anything like that. It's not telling you too much, but it does give you at least a feel for the sentiment of investors who have just flipped on a dime. Right? They've been incredibly bearish, and now's a little bit of news, and they're piling back. And that, means, and that means human, right? And and that means it's what, James? That means what? Uh, just it's t- it, we see this very very commonly. You know, when I used to track flows in equities and fixed income, it's a very very similar thing across other asset classes. It's just the mentality of the investor that the sheep maybe that maybe that's the best it's way. It's called to it's called investor amnesia, and you won't believe how much amnesia. Yeah. A, a five thousand dollar candle can create. Let's see what happened. Fast. Oh, hold on, guys. Two weeks ago, on the fifth of June, when the action happened against finance, it was the end of crypto. People were exiting the space. VCs like Jason Kalianis turned around and said, "If you're in crypto, pivot to AI." The articles now is a good time to leave crypto. It was the worst time to leave crypto. Weeks later. With $1,000 in Bitcoin and Twitter is euphoric because TradFi is coming into crypto. It's an investor amnesia. And you know what I've learned? You know what I've, and I wish I could apply it a little bit better, is just do the opposite of how you feel. Just, we, I feel always you know, like, just do the opposite. If, you could, if I had to buy bit accounts and one of them was what I feel and the other one was the opposite of what I feel, the opposite of what I feel, I'd be a multi billionaire today. Exactly- I've written articles on that. You counter the beginners should just counter trade their own personal sentiment and emotions. It's a hundred percent true. But I, I do want to and right now side. Okay, go ahead. No, hold on, hold on. And right, and right now today, it feels very uncomfortable to be buying ETH, and it feels very uncomfortable to be buying altcoins, and it feels a lot more comfortable to be buying Bitcoin. What does that tell you? Yeah, I'm buying altcoins, but that that's beside the point. Yeah. Hey, I didn't. Scott, hold on, Scott. You're, hold on, Scott. You're buying altcoins, are you? Quietly. Hey, holy shit. This is, okay, this is, hold on. This is a breaking news. Guys, Scott, breaking news, breaking news. This is mental. I'm bullish as fuck suddenly. I'm bullish as hell now. Ignore Binance, ignore Coinbase. Scott is buying up. You never told me. I, I, also, I also, for a month, literally, for a month, said, I'm just setting bids on Bitcoin at 25200 For a month. And everybody said, oh, it's never going back there, and this is whatever, and it's boring, and if it goes there, it's going straight to 19, and you're an idiot. I didn't share anything else, and I just spent most of what I had on Bitcoin at 25000 It feels uncomfortable to be buying altcoins now. Therefore, I think you should be buying altcoins now. This is not financial advice. This is just long-term. Long-term. Oh, I don't yeah. expect that. They, I, that doesn't mean they won't go down another 20 30%. But when oh, it's out, altcoins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but then... But could we see, could we see, so right, could, could we, yeah, I'll, I'll let you share the story. Can I ask you one more question? Like it, it, with the crackdown, can't we see a lot of startups just literally, literally go to zero, not because they fail as a startup, but because the crackdown forces them to go to zero. It's like, hey, you cannot for another couple of years, for another three, four, five years, operating through a, a utility token will not work and we'll make sure of it. Is that a possibility? Which I don't think it is, but is it? Let me give you, let me give you to the, the first the first argument that I have to what you've just said is, I think that the SEC has thrown its two biggest punches. I think if you think about the SEC and they had two big bullets, 
they've now fired both of those big bullets. I kind of ask, I kind of ask myself, where else do they have to go? They are after token number three in the picking order, which is which is XRP. They are the, they they leave they have left coin alone. But actually they could go for Ethereum. I'm not sure where exactly they would go. Are they going to sue Talik, the Ethereum Foundation? I'm not sure where they're going to go. And they've gone for the two biggest exchanges. Okay. So what's left? Like where else are you going to go? What's the next action that you're going to do? You're really going to sue. You're really going to put it down. Um, any action on what about stables? What about any any attacks on stables? There's a stable coin, there's a stable coin bill that's going into parliament. What in a month or two months or what? what, what Scott, you're much more on top of time timing. And it's one month uh, next in July. At some point, McHenry has said that there'll be a markup period for some stable coin legislation. We're also seeing that Lummis Gillibrand may be re. Uh, proposed a year later now with they've said is it'll be a meaner, leaner version and we'll focus on stable coins. David Silver, I see that you uh, have your hand up. I don't know if you had a comment on the stable coin side. We'd love to get the guest opinions on this. Maybe David's not there. There, There is a question that I wanted to ask very specifically though. Um, we have uh, my two favorite Charleses, uh, Ch- Charles Jansen and, and Chuck Mounts here from S&P. And obviously you guys are listening to this and I'm sure somewhat uncomfortably to some degree, but you guys are literally at one of the most trusted, largest financial institutions on, on the planet, S&P Global. And the two of you have effectively led the charge on the crypto side for S&P, uh, period. And so what I want to know is, does this regulatory environment, this uptick in enforcement action, which has nothing to do with you, does that at all shake your conviction or does that change anything for S&P's approach to this space? Hey, yeah. Hey, Scott. Can you can you hear me? Yep, you're perfect. Okay, yeah. So, um, you know, from 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 my perspective, I don't think it really changes um, our approach. It's just an additional piece of information to factor in on how we think the market is going to unfold and how it will influence uh, institutional adoption uh, in the space. And I think it's notable to look at the fact that you've seen these SEC actions and kind of this conversation has been really focused on that. But at the same time, you have now BlackRock filing for a, a spot Bitcoin ETF and the reemergence of applications from previously denied applicants. So it is it is quite an interesting uh, dichotomy there uh, on the regulatory side, but the largest asset manager in the world is taking proactive steps to kind of launch a, a kind of a, a new crypto product. So, you know, I, I think there's like, like elsewhere in the space, there's just a lot of competing and, you know, like um, divergent trends. But the long-term trend to us is clear that the creation of this alternative set of uh, financial rails is moving forward and and BlackRock has just demonstrated that. Yeah, I think we agree. And that's why we've seen, I think, the market sort of shrugged off the Coinbase and Binance action because BlackRock came in a few days later and made the ETF announcement and changed everything. Charles Jansen, I see you here as well. I mean, do you share, I'm assuming you somewhat share, but what, what color can you add to that? Yeah, so I, I obviously share everything Chuck said. Uh, we, we were at Washington speaking with Senate in the House uh, just uh, last week or two weeks ago. Uh, it was very interesting to see the the role filling on both sides. So it seems when we discuss, um, you know, the, the idea of 
people leaving the US, it seems it's not really seen as a huge issue. It was not that this before when we had the discussion it was before the the BlackRock news. Uh, the feeling was that uh, it's fine if people are leaving, when the regulation will be there, uh, everybody will come back, which could be true if it's done soon, but might not be true if it's done in 10 years. Um, overall, it seems that, uh, so, we, you know, we're interested in more in the stable coin and in the actual crypto finance market more than just Bitcoin itself. So, uh, they got this bill that is um, going to for market as market I think next week or, or around that date for stable coins. That's something we've been following a lot and we're really interested in. Uh, I don't know if you're interested to expanding really on that. Or what you yeah, I mean I, that's what we were literally leading in with anyway. So that's a nice sort of segue. I think we everybody is curious what's going to happen with stablecoin regulation in the United States. It's the lowest hanging fruit. I think we all agree the most logical place for them to start. But then we get these this rumor mill of oh they'll just choose USDC, everything else will be out, outlawed, or there will be you know no algorithmic stablecoins, which I think will be the case. Chuck, I saw you lifted your mic as well. I mean, where do you think this is heading uh, as we see this legislation actually finally hitting the floor? Okay, yeah, so... Uh, sorry, just be, just before you answer, remember we spoke about that God candle on Bitcoin? Happening. Happening as we speak. 30,700. There we go. That was the candle. Anyway, back... Not, let's get back to our regular program. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so the 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 time we spent in Washington last week was really interesting, and I had just a few uh, pretty strong takeaways. One was, as you mentioned, Scott, um, the stablecoin bill is going to mark up. My understanding is July nineteenth, um, and so that we're going to get to the point here very quickly of a of a vote on on progressing this. Um, and the sentiment is, if it's a strong bipartisan vote i.e. 60 to 70 House, Democratic House members get on board, uh, including uh, Maxine Waters, then the bill has a, a good chance of passing over to the Senate and advancing. Um, and if it doesn't get a bipartisan kind of result um, and that they can't, in essence, get kind of together on what seem to be some of the main issues, like, for instance, federal oversight versus state level oversight, uh, if they don't get the bipartisan vote, then it's kind of dead on arrival in the Senate. So I think that's the um, kind of landscape as we see it based on kind of our understanding uh, of what's happening in Washington. Um, and as far as the uh, crypto market structure approach goes, I, I think that's going to be off for some future date. So it seems like all focus is going to be on stable coins uh, and it's going to come up to this uh, bipartisan approach kind of coming to be if it comes to be like in the next you know month or two and just like quickly on that just when we say stable coin remember we include all the bank issues stable coin last time we spoke scott we mentioned the the one issued by societe generale now mitsubishi is issuing one so we're, we're looking across the scope do you think that the stable coin act if it if and when it's passed uh do you think that that's bullish for crypto and when i say crypto i mean anything under Bitcoin, or do you think that just bullish for USDC, USDT, and creating a digital dollar? Do you think that flows into things like Ethereum, Tron, um, I don't know, maybe even some of the dApps, or do you think that that's kind of like 
isolate for that section? Uh, I, I, Charles may have a different view than I do, but I think this is uh, table stakes for the whole industry. So I think having kind of clear policy formation and regulatory parameters are being set will be a very important piece of unlocking um, the the flows of capital into the crypto financial ecosystem in all its various fashions uh, for institutional players. Yes, I agree. The only thing we're not speaking about uh, any opinion on you know being bullish on the token price. That's not something we can touch on being where we are. Yeah, but, but essentially what you're saying is that the, the, we're talking about regulatory clarity. We're talking about uh, the hurt coming in, the Wall Street coming in. Well, this is happening and now we're complaining. Like It's not happening as we would like it to, but it is happening. And and for me, I see that to be net-net. If you look at it from a, from a thousand, thousand foot view, that looks like a positive development. It's just it going to be a, yeah, a few we're, hurdles on the way. We're not complaining. Yeah, no, it's, it is the positive development for the field. Uh, it really depends on the mentality of who's listening, right? So if you're an absolute Bitcoin maxi that just care about uh, resisting censorship, maybe it's not super interesting or, or maybe it's a bad news, but you're more interested in having a new financial market that can thrive with DeFi and hybrid stages before that and have uh, tokenization of real world assets with fractionalization, better access to those different type of investment, faster settlement, but still on public chain, etc. Then, then it's a, it's a great. Yeah. Either yeah. way, as you just mentioned, Charles, I think the part of the BlackRock news that's being somewhat underreported is how incredibly bullish they were in their last investor report on the idea of tokenizing real world assets absolutely huge they've made a huge point to mention it they're very very supportive of doing that and i know that obviously aligns with what you guys are working on as well yes that, yeah, that's a big thing right that's a quadrillion great yeah we're super interested in that part of the market and kind of going back to um kind of the expansion of uh, the crypto ecosystem through stable coins you know when we talk to many of our tradfi clients you know they can't actually own or have stable coins or other crypto assets uh, on their balance sheet. Um, and so to the extent that you get a policy formation, a regulatory approach that facilitates that ability to bring those assets on balance sheet, then you're going to start to unlock the capabilities around uh, expansion to the ecosystem, the flow of their funds um, onto DeFi rails, and also like the creation of structured products. You know, so it, it, it is in my view, uh, the beginning of unlocking um, the decentralized financial capabilities to the traditional uh, market players and and the the hundreds of trillions of dollars uh, that can ultimately flow that direction. So I, I think this will be, when we look back 10 years from now with our 2020 hindsight, we will see this as a pivotal moment in the evolution of the ecosystem. I agree. Matt, you have your hand up. Go ahead. Well, there was a there was something left unsaid with that BlackRock letter that I think bears mentioning. Um, tokenized real world assets, yes, but maintained and controlled by a ledger that BlackRock controls. They're not going to anoint or appoint, not to fed a new one's bags, but Tron or et cetera token Polkadot as okay, and then and we will we will maintain who controls or who owns what on these chains that we do not uh that we do not control the they un- i'm not sure about that unwritten word 
the unwritten word that I took away was they're they're going to retain control of who updates the ledger and uh, uh, who uh, can um, add and remove from it. It can be done. I must say, mission protocol. And, and and we see, for instance, what JP Morgan is doing with Project Guardian is exactly that. So there's a lot of project right now is almost sweet to do uh, different two two big type of uh, a project. One is permission thing on top of mostly Ethereum, like nobody's speaking about Tron, and uh, the other one is well stuff like digital asset content, which in a way is a bit decentralized. Nobody's speaking about Tron, but we're talking about stable coins and the bulk of USDT is sent on Tron, which nobody talks about for whatever reason, because it's cheaper and it's faster. But that is where people are use, sending stable coins. It's actually the default on most exchanges. Yeah, but let me let me just kind of give right. more credit to Ryan. Bitcoin just hit a two-month high, and it's at 30,800. The team just sent it in the group. I know I'm a bit late because I wasn't looking at the charts like you guys. Mark ETH is at 1,900. You know, I come you know, I come here, and I tell you that if we get the God candle and we get the God candle while we're on the show, you should, you know, we should do it more often. Yeah, well, we have... Okay, so that means when you talk about Thanks, our sponsor in 10 minutes, it should pump, huh? When you talk about our sponsor, it should blow up, I guess. I'll give you I'll give you a list of projects we can, you can talk about tomorrow. I'll give you my whole bag. But uh, let's uh, we are talking talking about the um, uh, Scott. Can we talk about the sponsor actually? Because this, this is a pretty exciting one. Let's do it in a minute. I just brew, I did see the you wanna you wanna ride up. You wanna get a you wanna get a fight going. I know what you're doing. Uh, I'm to do Before we talk about our sponsor, I think we need, just need to be, just remind the audience that we we do take sponsors, and there is a pin tweet with all the details. If you do want to, have I didn't pin it, man. Did you did you pin it? Although I didn't pin it. Did you? You should pin it, Mark. Yeah, I usually do, but I'll blame Romy. Hold on, Romy from the team. You should be listening to this. You didn't send it to me, Romy. I know you're listening. Why don't you send it to me to pin? Romy, it's your fault. But yeah, so just, I'll Mara, pin it to you. You can email us. Mara, 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 hold on. Whenever you come on, yeah. Are you having an MRI? Are you having some aging? Bio, Look, guys, I slept, I, guys, I'm doing biohacking, but I slept, 40, I slept 14 and a half hours. I woke up really late for this, so my schedule screwed up. So I apologize for the background noise. I do have a life. And I, I, I'm doing some biohacking. But what, what I'll do now is I'll retweet it on, on my account. You can retweet it on your account and then I'll pin it. But this is, so if you want to come on as a sponsor, I'll let you shill it as well, Ryan. But let me, if you want to come on as a sponsor, there's an email in that tweet. I'll pin it at the top. It's on top of my account and I'll pin Rand's one as well. Can you retweet it so I'll find it, Rand? And I'll pin Rand's one. And um, yeah, you can email us there. Uh, you can DM us if you can't find the email. It's not working or if it's easier for you, but we prefer emails. Um, but yeah, go ahead, Rand. Okay, Scott, Scott, actually, over to you. Maybe you want to introduce our sponsor, that Mickey's uh, friend of yours. Uh, well, listen, Mickey, Mickey would be here anyway. I want to be very clear. Mickey, first of all, what's up, buddy? But you're invited any day to these spaces, period. <laughs> um, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I, was, I, got, I want to give you guys some context because there's, Mickey, you can re listen to my podcast with him. We, we've spoken, but I'm, I'm in, a, in the Waldorf Astoria in Dubai, and... These guys, I start talking to these crew of guys as we were, it's a small conference, and they start telling me the most amazing story about Africa and the adoption of crypto there, but this insane story about a village in Africa. It's become my favorite crypto story, period, where basically they went in, they dr dropped this thing, and then all of a sudden came back after COVID because they were locked out, and this one piece of equipment had effectively transformed this entire fishing village, uh, and 
it just and they said, well, if you really want to hear the story, you got to meet Mickey, right? And so Mickey and I started talking, and I just absolutely love it. And it's the story, obviously, of sort of the inception of World Mobile. I mean, Mickey, I guess you could do uh, this much more justice than me if you could even just tell that one little story. I know it's not what the point is here, but it's so incredible to me. So, hey, Brian, let's go. Hey, Mario, how are you doing? And I have some of all good. Oh, good, but tell us a story. You know, it cares about us. Go ahead, bro. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. So uh, around three years ago, um, we decided that we were going to run our first pilot. It was in uh, Tanzania, Zanzibar, on a small rural fishing village. So we started to look at how to lay down infrastructure, how to power that infrastructure, and we came up with something called an air node. This air node was solar powered. At the top of it, a, a solar array or on somebody's, somebody's hut. Underneath that was... Uh, a repeater underneath that was a wi-fi unit underneath that was some second life batteries and underneath that was uh some charging ports so we were expected to put this up for a month or so and go see the impact of internet before we really went out uh, and made world mobile something big we couldn't last a month we ended up lasting seven months eight months because of covid but when we arrived in this village first of all nobody spoke english there was around 120 130 people there uh, mostly mostly fishermen and those fishermen would wait for a trader to travel 60 or 70 kilometers. You're not talking normal roads, you're talking 60 to 70 kilometers, which is a long journey. Uh, and they, they would hold that fish until the, until the trader came, or they'd end up smoking that fish. So this is what we knew about the village. It had one pub, uh, or bar, shop, um, and that was it. We returned back seven months later, the film crew went in, and they called me and said, look, we're not in the right place. So I said, you see our nodes? I said, yeah, I said, you're in the right place. What we understood from that moment onwards, there was around 300 people in the village. The fishermen had upgraded all their fishing nets. There were two or three pubs at this point, one or two shops. And just because of the street light, the connectivity and the power, when, when it went dark at nighttime, previously, everyone went to bed, seven o'clock, eight o'clock. And they, if they're lucky, they had a home solar system. What we managed to do was stimulate the economy where actually you ended up having a lot of people staying up late at night, selling their items, selling their goods. Uh, when we returned to that village, we also had three or four people that had learned to speak English and German from Duolingo. So that was really the catalyst for, for World Mobile growing. Yeah, but also the, then the fishermen were able to sell using the internet. Yeah, what, what, what everybody had jerry-rigged the uh, one piece of electricity and yeah. had to give the entire village lights. So we, we, put, we put up two nodes, right? Um, one on either side. Uh, and then what we found out, that one of the nodes had stopped working three or four months in. The reason it stopped working is because they were very clever. They managed to take copper wiring and then start to light up their houses or light up the shop with this copper wiring. Yep. But of course, it wasn't built for that. So they ended up um, breaking the system. When we got there, they said, look, we won't do that again. But I think the most beautiful was the real-time communications between the fishermen and the traders. This was the biggest, the biggest business in, in this particular village. They were now able to message the trader and say to the trader, hey, look, I've got this fish sending him pictures or sending her pictures. The trader would then see it worth coming and was a guarantee that the fish wasn't smoked. When fish is smoked, uh, or seafood is smoked, it ends up using 10, 10, uh, 10, uh, 10 times the value, excuse me, right? So the, the increase for the village was, was absolutely crazy. And of course, they, they decided that they weren't going to hack the systems anymore and take power. See, Ricky, just maybe for more for some... To have light. So, um, he, hey, it's Ryan. Um, maybe just for a lot of people here in the West, don't really know what... Uh, uh, world mobile is how it works maybe just give us like a quick rundown of exactly how, how the product works are you guys still with me 
Yeah, yeah. So, Mickey, right. you, can't, you can't hear Rand. Yeah, I'll bring Rand down and up. But essentially what Rand is asking is, like, can you tell the audience what, what is World Mother? How does it work? For anyone that doesn't know, because we, we forgot to do the introduction. Okay, yeah, sure. So, And I've, I've done you a favor as well. I've just pinned or It's not a favor. Like we, we do it all the time. But I've pinned you a tweet, which ex- with, there's links and everything there and a bit of a summary for anyone that wants to check it. But go ahead, man. Awesome. So let me start with the problem. There's 3 billion people that are totally unconnected to the internet right now in the world. There's probably another billion that are connected to 2G. 2G can't really do much except for make a voice call or send an SMS. In addition to that, there's a bunch of people still connected to 3G. You couldn't have this call on 3G right now, right? You can't have a Skype call. You can't have a Zoom call. You can't really download videos. It's a very slow method. So non-meaningful internet probably affects 5 billion people in the world, but 3 billion people are totally unconnected. You've got the World Bank, United Nations, the International Telecommunications Union, the GSMA, and they all recognize this is a massive issue for the development of any country, any individual. It affects education, health, and of course, prosperity, right? So the most unconnected continent on the planet is Africa. And that's what everybody thinks. So with around 850, 900 million people in sub-Saharan Africa, you've got around 70% unconnected from the internet. But actually, it's not just Africa. If you take the United States of America, you have around 10% of the population unconnected and 30% of the landmass. And then if you look at all the other countries around Europe and the other continents, they're all plagued with the same issue. So the issue comes from legacy infrastructure and legacy business models. An oligopoly own the communications network. They own the spectrum, they own a lot. So what we've done is something very different. We've brought in something called a sharing economy into this space. You know, you've heard of Airbnb, you've heard of Uber, um, even you heard of Helium, you know, and they proved that there was a shared economy. Their business model was wrong, I believe, in terms of the connectivity layer and giving out tokens when they weren't in a steady state, in a startup state. So we chose to do something very different than that. But essentially, World Mobile is a new economic model to incentivize people to put up infrastructure where there isn't any. And the incentives are quite big because the telecommunications industry is over a $3 trillion market worldwide. And that's without value-added services. So it can be absolutely huge. So, but how does it, I'm going to ask a stupid question. So how does it really work without getting too technical? Like how, when you say uh, you leverage the blockchain um, to, to, to bring this to the, not unbanked, but the, uh, the people that don't have internet connection, how does it actually work? What, what, the blockchain, what does the blockchain provide? A lot of the bureaucratic layers of telecommunication are done by huge teams, right? Customer service, customer support, Smart contracts can take a lot of that away. International border settling, cost, uh, smart contracts can take a lot of that away. But I think it's much deeper than that. So right now, as a mobile network operator, some of them, um, I'm not saying who, but you can go and look on Google. They know everything about us, right? They know when we wake up, when we go to sleep, who our friends' friends are, where we bank, if we use Bitcoin, if we don't, because they have that passing through them in plain text in most cases, right, due to, due to regulation. And that's not right. The regulator needs to know what you're doing. The government needs to know what you're doing. But actually, a mobile network operator shouldn't know what you're doing. Now, if they do or they don't, that's you know, not for me to comment. Again, it's on Google. But what we've done is, as a, as a blockchain operator, at our core, we're able to prove that we cannot see these things, that your data is your data. At the end of the day, you're paying it. It's, it's you, right? It's a digital imprint of your own self. You have a right to it. So we've used SSIDs and we've used... Um, uh, DIDs and all types of methods in order to be able to actually give you your data and make sure that nobody else can take it from you. And then you have an option. You know, we never promote that you sell it because 
I wouldn't promote your service yourself, but you could give it for a donation. You could rent it. You could do whatever you want. At the end of the day, it's not our choice what we do with your data. It should be yours. So but before I know, yeah, I've, I've just got a, another question. Ryan Scott, I know you've got questions as well. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the mic right after this. But, you know, I've got, I've got Imran Khan, so the former prime minister of Pakistan, coming on my show in a few hours. Um, and, and the reason I mentioned this is that Pakistan will be a perfect market for you. Are you is there any, any, any other countries outside of Africa that you're working with? Because we've used yeah, Africa as an example. We're, we're in four different continents. So we started in Africa. I was born in, in Zanzibar. Zanzibar was a great place, very accommodating for us to be able to fine-tune our sharing economy. And fine-tuning it sounds like an easy thing, but actually bringing infrastructure, showing people how to use it, telling people they've got to keep it plugged in, giving them the rewards of, of running that infrastructure is not an easy thing. So we've been spending the last two years doing that. And actually, I can go into this later, but in Pakistan, we've taken the same approach as we have in Zanzibar, except when we don't have 50 people working there. We have zero. It's exactly the same shared economy. It's a cookie-cutter approach. And actually, we've seen real big growth over the last couple of weeks with nodes going down, with people paying for the network. And yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a 200 million plus people um, who all suffer from either bad service or very expensive service. So Pakistan is definitely uh, something we've been focused on for the last couple of years. And finally, the shared economy launched there last week. Mickey, I mean, this we've kind of talked about this before, but aren't you? isn't your model a major threat to the some of the biggest incumbent companies on the planet? I mean, you're talking about telecommunications. On one, on one level, it is, right? Because the people power is much stronger than, than any single uh, company. If you look at Facebook, you look at Microsoft, you look at Google, um, you look at Starlink, they're all trying to fix this problem. It's, it's probably the greatest problem, the last problem to fix for mankind that we can fix. And half the world being unconnected is, is, is just wrong. Everybody should have the right to the internet. If we didn't have the internet, we couldn't have the conversation that we've had or the communication that we've had or even listen to this. So on one side, it can be perceived as that. On the other side, it's a massive help. They've got huge amounts of problem with their network. You know, they buy their infrastructure. If you want to become a mobile network operator, a big one, what you've typically got to do is go out there with a billion dollars in your pocket, spend $200 million on licensed infrastructure, spend another $200 million on marketing, then you've got another $200 million to spend on your, on your team, um, and, and, and then you've got the rest to be able to continuously roll out where the patches are. World Mobile, very different than any other DY in the space, we support those mobile network operators. We bridge the gap and fill the gap for them. So in the United States of America, for example, I said 30% of the landmass is unconnected. 10% of the population is unconnected. That's crazy. Nine million, nine million children don't have internet at home. So the mobile network operators, four or five years ago when I first came to them, just laughed. And then the last couple of years, they said, oh, this is interesting. And then as of this year, we're actually speaking to some of the biggest mobile network operators on the, on the planet. And uh, they, they need the help. They need the support. They want to provide service. And more than that, the FCC um, and, and other regulatory bodies are enforcing that they use their spectrum, are enforcing that they do connect the unconnected, are enforcing that they do provide equal access to everybody. So companies like World Mobile actually provide a massive solution to those. Yeah, you guys had a big announcement yesterday, right? Uh, I believe we have big announcements every week, but uh, I believe <laughs> yesterday was the was the buyback, and you know that's just testimony that the the network is working, and it's exciting on many levels. Exciting for our community, the people in the shared economy. Exciting for the anode operators um, in the shared economy as well, because money's coming in into those anodes. 
But most of all, it's exciting because actually, you touched on this 30 minutes ago. There's a lot of, um, I think Rand said it, you're insane to be holding uh, uh, a token right now, right? An altcoin. The reason is because they're mostly speculative. 99% of altcoins are future, a little bit of good tech, um, maybe a Ponzi. Nothing is really tapping into the real world beyond speculation and trading. But our people on the ground, doesn't matter if there's a bear or bull market, they're buying internet. They're feeding the system. They don't care. They don't know. They don't even need to know anything about crypto. So it's a very exciting situation for us where actually over the next month, month, or years, we will actually be coupled. No one will care. The same amount of revenue or more will continue to grow into the network. And that will come back to the shared economy, the people that are running the infrastructure, processing the blockchain, running the call. Hey, man, so, the quick, uh, let, me, let me ask you a selfish question. Even if you're a sponsor, I, 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 I don't care. I'm going to ask a tough question. What do you think of how you're dealing with, with the current market conditions, with the current sentiment, with, with all the regulatory crackdown? What does that mean to you and on a personal level? Like, and be, be honest, be genuine. Don't say like, no, we don't care how is a utility token. It must be tough. How are your investors reacting? Well, I think we were pretty smart. So we decided to do things differently. The actual connectivity layer, the air nodes, they don't touch crypto. They're just there. They're just functioning. They work. Those people get paid in normal fiat currency. You cannot expect to be a mobile network operator that connects hundreds of millions of billions of people. And we've committed to connect a billion people by 2030. I think we can do it much faster with the with the sharing. How, how much how much how much have you raised to do that? Um, we we distributed uh, during the TG around thirty eight million dollars uh, worth of tokens, and we're still in very good shape. Okay, so so and you've raised anything before the TG? Uh, the founders put all the money in. We put around five million, six million dollars. But the founders, the respect, mobile network operators. For example, you've got. James Tag, the co-founder, invented the touchscreen telephone that most of you are using today. Invented the eSIM that most of you are using today. Um, also invented our quantum antenna and our proof of service. Good for you, uh, man. Good for you. But and then, and then Mario, you got other... you got to see these guys' balloons, man. Uh, yeah, I, I covered. I covered. He's making fun of me because I covered the Chinese balloon. No, I, I, I'm not even making fun of you. You actually have to see these guys' balloons. Um, but the, can I go back, Mickey, can I go back to my question, um, in, in that, how, how does that all mean to you? Like, what are the meetings like that you had behind the scenes? What is the community like with all the news, with everything we see the, the SEC action, man, with Coinbase, with Binance, with everything else that's happening with all these different tokens considered securities. I think people forget and they, they haven't realized yet. If you look at world mobile right now in Zanzibar, we're in the top 15 of all blockchains in terms of real world users, actually you people using the blockchain, no bot, no anything. So I think the diehard world mobilers. They know what's coming, right? They see what's coming. They see nodes coming live. They see new countries coming live. They see all the, all the new licenses, you know, that's happening. So our community is incredible uh, and they're fully behind what we're doing. In terms of how do other people see this? Well, there's no other way for them to see it. They don't have, we, we don't have crypto on the front layer. The blockchain, the mobile core that we developed is the part that actually uses the, the, the token. And of course, the, the, the end user can hold that token, gets benefits for holding that token. But absolutely not necessary. If you put a token in the way of a user, how do you get a billion people? How do you get a hundred million people? These people might not know how to use it, might not want to use it, might be scared. And you know, the situation right now in crypto, as it is always, is uh, fear until it's joy. So in general, in general, man, Scott, this guy, this guy, Scott, this guy's too optimistic. Oh, oh he's not joking, bro. Joking. It's a compliment, man. Um, any other questions they have, Scott? Run. 
I would just say give uh, Mickey the chance for final thoughts. I mean, I know everything there is to know here because I, I have grilled him before. <laughs> Mickey, anything else you want to share before we go? Look, too optimistic. When you've got something that real that has real world demands in the hundreds of millions or billions and billions, there is a reason to be optimistic. When you've built your company in a way that is not um, a typical crypto play yet involves crypto mostly in the most meaningful way, and you've got real world revenue driving through. It's a great reason to be optimistic, right? We're seeing adaption every day. The bear market's going down. We may be losing token holders, but we're gaining new customers every single day that are paying us for the network. It's only a matter of time. So you're right, Matt. We are, we are very optimistic. And, and the problem you're solving is, I've always talked about this, you know, everyone's talking about all the next hot thing. Everyone's talking about AI. Everyone's talking about metaverse. But then everyone forgets the true, the, the, the main reason, the main argument we made to support, one of the biggest arguments we made for Bitcoin is like banking the unbanked or helping people outside first world countries. Remember, Scott, when we talked to these crypto skeptics and what we, we need to sit there discussing with them that they might not see the utility of, of blockchain or decentralization, but they live in a different world to the people in Pakistan, to people in Africa. So, and, and this is why Mickey's argument... Not just the people in Pakistan or Africa. Go and live in... Go, go to LA. Go there and see how much the cool drops. It's not just based in... You know, it's a common misconception. And internet... That's the layers. Man, man, our, yo, yo, our space crashed yesterday because no joke, because Scott's internet crashed yesterday. Yeah, I got, my house got struck by lightning in the middle of a uh, in the middle of spaces. That's lucky. You did, you did okay. I know. I mean, I'm here. You deserve got some good things coming. So, Miguel, I interrupted your final words. Go ahead, man. Final words are that everybody can be a part of this shared economy and they should be a part of this shared economy. Everybody here is using the internet and it's a human right to have the internet. And that's kind of what we're fighting for. Ultimately, what we're looking to do is not run a charity here. We're looking to run an extremely profitable shared economy. And so far, it's looking pretty good. If you look at Zanzibar and stats on, on the WMT scan, uh, by we're the biggest DY by revenue that exists at, at the moment. And we only have 390 nodes publicly uh, viewable. We have a few more in a few different places. We're just about to launch in the United States of America. Uh, we're also launching in, in other parts of Asia with some really big partnerships coming up. Um, and yeah, it, please be a part of it. Join. You don't. You know, I'm not asking you to be an Earthnode operator. I'm not asking you to be an Earthnode operator. I'm not asking you to do anything except from be aware and make sure that people know. Without the internet, we're screwed. That's the reality. You have not. Scott, how do you know? How do you know Mickey? By the way, Scott. I told you we met it. We met in Dubai. Bruce is here. Bruce, the host, the Satoshi Roundtable. Me, we were there. We were with there. Uh, Ran was there, and I, I was sitting on the couch, uh, peacefully eating a meal. And I met Mickey, and we we talked endlessly. I, I've I've known Ran for even longer. Ran and I met in 2019 in Miami. I sat down and had dinner with a soda. And he was like, wow, you know, we we need you know Africa needs this. And that there were at that moment we were very focused on on the African continent. But now the shared eco economy is standing up on its own two feet is generating revenue. You know, it's the cookie cutter approach. What we need to do now is massage that shared economy to work with license spectrum in the United States of America, much, much different. You know, in some places you'll use Wi-Fi because it's fantastic, massive throughput, but the distance isn't so great. So people will come to that node and that's very suitable for a village in, in Africa or Pakistan with 200, 300 people, three or four nodes there. In other places like the USA, you'll stick it up on a big roof and reach 15 kilometers. And then we talked about the balloons. Scott wasn't joking. Um, they're actually called Aerostat. Uh, I get a fine every time I call it a balloon. But it's okay. I'm okay. To Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Sorry. But they're, they're incredible, right? So what we, we stick an air node on the bottom of one of these Aerostats. Essentially, it's like a massive tower. It reaches 
on the first version with our antenna, we've got 75 kilometers squared radius. That's a huge amount of distance that you can cover. But you can't fit 2 million people, 3 million people onto one or one multi-array onto this. So you've got to have the ground station too. So my final words are, be a part of this. Understand that it's wrong that people don't have internet. Understand you can fix your own internet problems and your neighbors and the rest of the world. And we have a right. It shouldn't be controlled by one, two, three, or four big companies around the world. Actually, if you want to connect the unconnected, you've seen it. Starlink, Facebook, Google, almost unlimited money. Have they succeeded? No. Why not? Because they're trying to do it alone. Together, we're unstoppable. Go ahead, Mario. Yeah, no, that's it, man. That's it. I think it was a great. I started my gym session while listening to this, but I, one of my favorite projects in the world. Really love the pitch, Mickey. Live, love the, the overview and love what you're building, man. And you're a great speaker as well. So the the tweet is pinned above with more details. It's on my profile as well. So anyone that wants to check out World Mobile or head up Nick, uh, Mickey, check the pinned tweet. Yeah, I'm I'm doing my gym Dude, are stuff. You, so are you, are you like on a treadmill right now? Bro, I sent you the photo. I started my gym session. I woke up late today. I told you, man. I told you. I'm consistent. I don't take you a day off. You're working out with yeah, man. Con Sleep when we're doing it. Go Cool. Scott, I'll let you I'll let you wrap the space, man. No way. No. No. You're going to have to wrap it from your bike. Bro, okay. I'm going to wrap the space. Guys, really appreciate you all joining. Apologize for me doing the gym. But I, I promised myself to always be consistent. No matter what. And I did so. I slept 14 and a half hours yesterday because of my... I didn't sleep for two days. And now Scott's putting me on the spot. But love you all. Thank you so much. If there's breaking news, we'll cover it on the weekend. Scott, you're an asshole. We'll cover it on the weekend. And otherwise, we'll see you Monday. <laughs> Mickey, you're a beast. Great pitch. You're a real example here, man. You're really dedicated. I can see. Man, I don't take a day off, man. I don't take a He's day off. I don't care. No shoes. <laughs> you're an asshole. I didn't expect you to tell me to rap. I told you. So you take over. <laughs> but no, guys, thank you so much. Really enjoy this. It was a great space. And at least I didn't have quote unquote thunder hitting my house. I'll we'll see you all. I was sending you guys Tim Charles. What have you? Then you're private. All right, man. Yeah. And, and again, the pin tweet is above. Check it out. Guys, thank you so much. I got to go. Scott, thanks, bro. I'm ending it. This. Cheers. <laughs> I, wish I need to get my phone now to end it. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Bye, everyone. Yeah.